Episode 154 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you by cloud accounting software FreshBooks, offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to you. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. I would never write a book about what I know because that wouldn't be a very long book. But I could absolutely write a book about what I've learned. That's an important difference. And that's why I wrote this book. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi there, and welcome to the first episode of 2017 and the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where we talk about not only leadership, but also personal growth, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. In just a few minutes, you and I are going to be joined by Elise Mitchell. She's the author of Leading Through the Turn, How a Journey Mindset Can Help Leaders Find Success and Significance. I plan to ask Elise about the evolution of her leadership thinking and style over the last two decades, how she tackles and ultimately overcomes her fears, some of the most important lessons she's learned for building effective teams and developing the kind of culture that attracts the best people, and more. If you are a freelancer, either part-time or full-time, you might find yourself today racing against the clock to wrap up some projects, prepping for a meeting later today. And trying to tackle, too, a mountain of paperwork, that's life as a freelancer, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's challenging, but our friends at cloud accounting software FreshBooks believes it's so worth it, and so do I. You see, we believe the working world has changed. With the growth of the Internet, there's never been more opportunities for someone who is self-employed or working that side hustle. And to meet that need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of the all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It has been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you and I work. And I personally believe, as a user since 2009, that it's the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, to get paid faster. The all-new FreshBooks is not only super easy to use, it's packed full of powerful features as well. You can create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. I've actually timed this, and it's true. You can set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four days faster. You can also see when your client has seen an invoice and put an end to all the guessing games and a lot more. As a reward to you for listening to this episode, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial. And by unrestricted, I mean you have access to all their features for an entire month. Now, to claim your access to this free trial, just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead. That's freshbooks.com slash read to lead. And be sure to enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. You'll be glad you did. And even if you're on the fence, if you're not sure if cloud accounting software or FreshBooks is right for you, there's no harm in trying it. And know that when you do, you cast a vote for read to lead. The folks at FreshBooks go, hey, this is working. We should keep supporting the show. So you support read to lead when you sign up for this free trial. Again, it's at freshbooks.com slash read to lead. 
Elise Mitchell is an accomplished strategic communications professional and business leader whose entrepreneurial spirit helped build Mitchell from scratch into one of the top 10 fastest growing firms globally, a two-time Agency of the Year winner, and an Inc. 500 and Inc. 5000 fastest growing company. The company's client portfolio includes well-known brands like Walmart, Procter & Gamble, Hilton Worldwide, Kraft, Del Monte, Canon, Merck, and many others. And under her leadership, the company grew more than 500% in five years. In recognition of her accomplishments, Elise has received numerous national awards, including Agency Professional of the Year, Entrepreneur of the Year, and Top 50 Power Player. At the end of 2012, Elise sold Mitchell, and today it is the leading PR agency brand in the world's fastest-growing marketing communications companies, Dentsu Aegis Network. In addition to her role at Mitchell, Elise is leading efforts to build a global PR brand for the network. Prior to founding Mitchell, Elise worked on both the agency and corporate sides of the business, serving as the top public relations executive for Promise Hotel Corporation and holding various leadership roles at three advertising and public relations agencies. Her new book, also her first, is called Leading Through the Turn, How a Journey Mindset Can Help Leaders Find Success and Significance. Now, at least we've had the pleasure of having several of your colleagues on in the past, John Addison, John Maxwell, and many others, and we are excited to be able to add you to that list. Well, I appreciate you having me. Those are all people I greatly admire. So this is a <laughs> this is a is great honor for me. So thank you for that. Well, I wanted to start, Elise, by having you share a bit about how your own leadership style and thinking has evolved over the years. Uh, many of the experiences, in other words, that uh, have led up to you writing this book. Thank you. I I would say that I am a cold leader. Um, and I, I write about that early on in the book that I think some of us feel like we're accidental leaders. You know, we sort of fall mm -hmm. into leadership and for one reason or another. But then others of us, I just think we're made that way. You know, mm -hmm. it's in our DNA to want to lead, to to drive for things, to be in charge, to to lead the way um, as we move for, toward our goals. And I, I feel like I have always been that way since uh, very early in my life. And and so leadership is something I've aspired to, but it's it is definitely something that you grow into and you do develop your own style as you go along, um, knowing that you that you feel um, you feel called as a leader that mm -hmm. I think it just is a part of. Um, how you think all the time, you know, whether that's in your home life or in the community or your church life or in the workplace, you tend to seek out ways to lead. And it's interesting that um, some of your leadership tendencies work really well and <laughs> others of them you you discard as you go along. You're like, well, that's not very effective. So my style is fundamentally still very much who I am as a person. Um, I would describe myself as a very driven person very um, energetic, very passionate person, um, also a person who aspires to live up to values that I've carried my whole life. And all of those things, I think, wrap into the leader that you become, help you really shape the authentic leader that you can be. And, and that's, I think, one of the joys of leadership is trying to figure out who that person is <laughs> and to be authentically you and to dare to be yourself as a leader. Now, you, you for a while, didn't you, had exclusively sort of a destination leader mindset? 
And, and yes. that, that sort of evolved into more of a, a combination destination journey mindset, didn't it? It did. Yes. So the driven part of me, the very goal oriented, very results oriented type of leader that I am. And I think many people have that quality, mm. which it's a great thing to be a driven soul. You can certainly get a lot done when you are very <laughs> focused on your goals, very achievement oriented. But you can't be all that and only that. Mm. There there has to be a balance. And in while I was building my firm, Mitchell Communications Group, group, I reached a point where I began to realize all I was doing was focusing on the big dream of building my company. Mm-hmm. And entrepreneurship is very all-consuming like that. And if you're not careful, it can just, it kind of takes you to the brink of, oh my goodness, I get up every day and go to bed every night and it's all I do. It's all I think about and everything else in your life begins to suffer. And then you realize, wow, you know, there's, I am missing the journey. And that's exactly what happened to me, sort of learning to balance this idea of being a destination leader but leading with a journey mindset. It was life-changing for me when I when I came to realize that there needs to be both of those things in my life. Uh, Seth Godin once said to me that we don't take action because we believe. We believe because we take action. He said, do first and, and believe second. Sort of this mindset that says, uh, in order to do anything worthwhile, we sometimes have to be willing to do things we maybe don't feel like we're quite ready to do. I, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk about working through your own fear uh, and experiences of feeling not quite ready sometimes to do something, but then doing it anyway. Mm. It's yes, I'll tell you that that's a scary place for leaders because we like to feel uh, in control. We like to feel comfortable. We like to know what we're doing and have a plan, know where we're going and how we're going to get there. And so when you reach these crossroads in your leadership experience where you look up and realize, oh, my goodness, I have no I have no idea what's going on and I have no idea what to do next. Um that is a dark place to be. But it but and I do I write about this in the book quite a bit is facing that fear of uh, and, and understanding it for what it is, is, hey, leadership a lot of times is stepping into new things. It, it should be a step up. It should feel different. It should be a stretch. And that's part of the um, excitement uh, of uh, being a leader because you have a chance to continue to learn throughout your journey if you're willing to continue to take that next step. I think sometimes as leaders, we we come to that point and we pull back because we think, I- I'm not quite ready to do this. I don't really know what to do next. But if we do that, we're going to miss uh, just some amazing destinations because we are, let our fears hold us back. And one of the things I've learned is when I press into that fear when I go ahead and take that step anyway, I actually can figure a lot out as I go. And that's a really comforting feeling. I mean, I'm, I'm to that point even to this very day thinking about mm. being a first time author and, you know, doing new and different things and saying, you know what, I'm going to figure a lot out as I go. And that's the nature of life. Mm. And you have to be willing to live in some of that uncertainty and embrace it and know that you can you can move through to the next place. Is, is that when you get kind of get into that mindset or that sentiment you talk about in chapter two, scrapping the map? I mean, there's benefits <laughs> to beginning with the end in mind, as Stephen R. Covey says, but you, you can plan only so much, right? Yes, uh, yes. And th- I'll tell you what, that was one of my uh, most powerful early lessons in my leadership journey was um, was the chapter you talk about, scrap the map. It's the idea that, yes, you want to have a plan. And like my husband and I, we ride motorcycles and, and we often will... St- 
plan a trip. You know, we look at the route. We think about the road. What's it going to be like? How beautiful is it? Are there turns? Where are there interesting things to see? You know, you really think it through. But chances are, once you're on the road and you're outgoing, you're going to come into some detours. Things are going to change or you're going to see a new road to take. And you have to be willing to scrap the map from the original plan, in other words, and go with the detours and not be afraid to try new things and see new places. And for me, it was a major move when we left um, our life in in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was in a, a corporate job. My husband was finished up his medical training and we were picking a place for to go and live. And um, he picked for us to go to Northwest Arkansas. This was a place I did not want to go. This is 20 years ago. And I had my sights set on a big city. And I thought it would have all the amenities and the job opportunities for both of us. And we ended up coming to Northwest Arkansas. It was really hard for me to make that sort of give up the plan I had in my mind and go with the detour. But it turned out beautifully. (laughs) We had this amazing life uh, here in Northwest Arkansas. And it was what allowed me to build my company. So there's so many things that have happened as a result of being willing to go with the detour. Um, you have to be willing to do that. And and also, I think a key part of that is your mindset about the detours that you face in life. I knew that I could go and be bitter about this move, or I could go and let change make me better. And it's up to you in your mind how you're going to ta- tackle some of the new um the, the detours that come along, some of the new things that are thrown your way, you have to really embrace it and decide that this is just going to be a new a new direction for you, a new road to take. You may still end up um, with the destination you had in mind. It just may be a different road to get there. It's not unusual today for a small company to have employees uh, part-time or even full-time spread out all over the world. Uh, when you started your company, though, that wasn't nearly as commonplace, was it? No, it wasn't. And it's interesting. My challenge when I first moved to Northwest Arkansas, it was a small market. So I did not have access to talent like you would have in major cities. Yet we were winning really terrific work, doing a lot of national work for clients like Walmart, Tyson, and J.B. Hunt. They were all based here. So I had this challenge. What was I going to do to try to find the talent that I needed? And I, I knew a lot of people in the industry from having worked in the business about 10 or 15 years to that point in the public relations field. So I reached out to people, regardless of where they were, and I said, hey, do you want to do some work with me? I have this great client base, great um, opportunities to do work. I need some assistance. And it doesn't matter where you are because I'm here. I'm with the client. So I can go in, meet with them, get the assignments, um, and then be able to disperse the work. And I over the first 10 years, that's how I built the business. I built up to a team of about 12 people who worked for me. A lot of them were senior level professionals who, for one reason or another, had left a full-time position. Um, Either they'd moved uh, with a spouse or they were um, at home with children, or maybe they had um, parents they were caring for. There was something in their life that was keeping them from being able to do full-time work, yet they all had significant experience. Mm -hmm. So it became a great match for me to 
build this team of talent. And it was interesting because at that time, nobody was doing that. And now today, you know, that's, I think, a very common place to be the virtual workplace. And people work globally now uh, from all, all different places. They're able to accomplish the work that they need. Being present in a specific spot is less important than I think it used to be. But it was a great solution for me. And today we still have that um, talent pool in place. We've grown it significantly. We call that our local link. We have now over 40 senior level professionals in a variety of disciplines that work for us. Um, We have videographers, photographers, researchers, designers, public relations professionals, and they're located all over the U.S. I think they're in 12 different states now in all the different time zones. And and that supplements our full-time staff. So it's sort of a hybrid labor model that we have in place. Full-time staff works um, all the time for clients. Then our part-time team, the local link, kicks in when we need expertise, um, when we need people on the ground in a certain market, when we we just have overflow. And so it works really well. What happens for you as a leader when you open yourself up uh, to others, when, when you're truly comfortable being you and, and being who you really are? I think there is such power in being um, being your authentic self in the workplace. I think many times we feel, whether you're in leadership or not, I think we often feel that we are to um, to to emulate others, that we are supposed to fit into a mold or you're with you're in an organization that has a culture, it has a set of values, it has a norms of how business is done. And we think we want to accommodate to that. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when we lose ourselves and we kind of norm to the middle <laughs> and nobody is bringing their individual qualities, that u- their unique perspective, um, when they don't have the courage to be able to speak up and bring forward new ideas or to try uh, new things, I think you really lose a lot. And you're not getting the best thinking from your people when when people feel like that. And so I have always found it to be much more powerful to try to be my authentic self and to empower others to do the same. And I think as a leader, when you role model authenticity, when you role model trying to be who you are and to bring forward what your thinking is, even if it's doesn't sound like what other people are saying. Um, it really encourages others to do the same. And it, 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 I think you get exponentially better results when people feel free to be themselves. Not to mention that I think people just absolutely feel much more connected to you because they feel like you're the real deal as a leader, that you what you see is what you get, you know, and you don't have to guess all the time of who is she trying to be or what does she want me to be as I want you to be the best you that you can be. And I want you to help me do the same. I think that's a much more powerful way to lead. Would you say that's one of the most important lessons you've learned for for building effective teams? Yes, it really is because people so much want to be valued and appreciated for who they are. And I think that's a very, very freeing thing. I remember when I was um, in high school and I was trying to pick a profession. I, I, I knew I wanted to go into public relations, but my mother was a microbiologist and my father was an organic chemist. And I wasn't really wow. sure what they were going to say. And I asked my mom, I said, Mom, what do you want me to be? You know, and I thought she'd say, well, you know, you need to be a lawyer. You need to, you know, a doctor or something 
you know, more traditional. And she said, Elise, I just want you to be happy. And I remember feeling like, really, does, does that mean I can be who I want to be? I can pursue something that I love. And it was a lesson that really stuck with me and um, encouraging me to be myself. And in other words, then to try to be the best leader that I can be. And by doing that, I think it helps um, it helps others uh, around you to strive for that and to bring forward their very best thinking. Um, the diverse teams, I think, are created when people feel that freedom to be who they are and they feel accepted and they feel included and their ideas are valued no matter how crazy they might sound. And I'm sort of known for saying, I've got a crazy idea. <laughs> so I, I love it when and other people say, hey, I, I'm thinking of something really different. Can I share it? Absolutely. What are you thinking? And sure, it may be crazy, but they may be on to something. And so, you know, you will attract really great people who feel like they can bring their best to the workplace um, when you set that kind of expectation and, and that type of acceptance for others. Well, Elise, what are some of the ways that having a journey mindset as a destination leader, in your view, frees you up to take risks and and innovate. You know, one of the fears I have always had as a as a destination leader and again, I define a destination leader somebody is very goal oriented, very results oriented, very driven to achieve their goals. I think one of the fears I have always had uh, and I think it's common, is fear of failure. Mm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because fear of failure, I think, does push you to try to to achieve your, and be your best because you don't want to fail. But you can't let that um, paralyze you either. And I think I have had times in my leadership experience where I was so afraid of failure mm. that I was less willing to take risk or less willing to innovate. And when you feel like you really don't have that much to lose, I think it's a lot easier to say, mm. sure, why not? Let's try this. But when you're so afraid that you're going to fail, and I think fail publicly, it it does tend to hold you back. And so that's one of the things I had to really tackle um, several years ago in, in my worry that people would think, oh, I wasn't smart enough, or oh, I couldn't figure it out, or oh, the business was not going to be as successful as it should be. And I don't know where those voices were coming <laughs> from. I think they were only in my head. But I they think they're, we commonly tell ourselves that we play this negative loop in our head of these voices that, that tell you, what if this fails? What if this doesn't work? So you when you realize that failure is a part of the learning experience, and it's also a great way to figure out the best way forward, and very few failures in life are um, significant enough to hold you back, especially in the workplace. Mm. Often you can stub your toe or you can even stumble significantly, but pick yourself back up and you are smarter, wiser, faster, better than you were before. We It's easy to see that in hindsight. It's really hard when you're in the moment because you, you want so badly for everything you do to work but it can't. And so um, having a journey mindset allows you to accept failure. It also allows you to live with uncertainty about how things are going to turn out because a lot of times you make decisions about things where you're, you're making your best guess about how something's going to go because that's all you can do is, is make your very best guess about, um, about a certain way to proceed or um, a certain investment to make in your company. And then you have to be willing to ride it through and 
partly with that is when you're when you are working through a decision and you don't know where it's going again you can figure it out as you go and know that no matter if it takes an unexpected turn you can find a way to pull it back again because every step you take you're getting smarter and you're um you're learning more about what is going to work and what's not because sometimes things unfold in real time too and you really can't tell what's going to happen you just have to jump in and be ready to go <laughs> and and that mind journey mindset allows you to say hey i can't control everything i don't know how it's going to turn out but i have smart people around me we have made the best decision we can and and we're going to figure it out as we move forward. Uh, I taught a college uh, course for the first time this past fall. And I've realized that when I discuss concepts like you've just talked about, their eyes light up. I think often as, as young people, as, as, as kids, we're, we're taught that there's one right answer. Um, and, and being wrong is is not an option. And we kind of have to, I think, in a lot of ways, unlearn some of that as we get older, don't we? Oh, I so agree with that. You know, I, re- I remember different periods of time in growing the business when we basically were just trying a lot of things. Mm-hmm. We were innovating right and left because we were we were trying to come up with new ways to, to drive revenue and to drive our growth and how to figure out how to accommodate to a client's interesting and different needs that we weren't anticipating. And I um, I felt like over time we got pretty good at creating a culture of try, Mm. which is the way I define that sort of that greenhouse environment that you can create for your people that says, hey, guys, we're going to we're going to give this a go. Let's let's what what are we willing to risk here and how much are we going to lose if something doesn't turn out exactly right? Maybe we lose a little bit of time, maybe lose a little bit of money, but chances are we're going to learn so much as we move forward. We're going to keep evolving our concepts and we're going to come up with bigger and better things but you can't just sit Mm. you have to be willing to try and in the try is where all the really best stuff comes Mm. well how do you define elise uh what you call the the sweet spot of innovation in other words what are the what are the things that need to converge uh, to create that spot well, yeah, it, you know what? This was something that when I spent a lot more time focusing on how to innovate and, you know, th- let's be practical about it. It would be great to sit around all day with sort of a labs concept, <laughs> you know, and say, hey, I'm just going to come up with great ideas. But when you're running a business, you have to be able to make money. Mm-hmm. And anytime you invest in innovation, you have to be thinking, how it, how am I going to turn these ideas into money? Where is the opportunity to to take what's not just a like, oh, a great idea, but something that we can actually uh, turn around and use it to drive the business. And there's three things that I look for the intersection of when we are trying to figure out, is this an innovation worth investing in? The first is desirability, which is what do our clients want? And there you have to do a good job of just listening to your clients or your customers, whoever it may be for you, listening to them. What are they asking for? Where is their pain point? What are they not finding a solution for from somebody else. So they have a desire for something new. So desirability. The second is feasibility, which is can we do it? 
And and I think that's an important question to ask because oftentimes we are pretty proud of our businesses and we think we can do anything. You know, <laughs> oh, the client needs this. Absolutely, we can do that. And in the end, we think, well, not really. <laughs> or we could do it, but not very well. You know, it's not um, something that we have a core competency in or it's not something that we can quickly get up to speed in. So feasibility, you have to be honest with yourself. Can we really do this? And will people expect to buy it from us? Would we would we have credibility if we try to get into this part of the market? So feasibility is number two. And viability is the third, which is can we make money? And this, of course, is the most important part, which is I could churn out stuff all day long that somebody could buy from me at cost. But then why am I doing that? You know, I've, I've just spent all this time and money um, not making a good profit. And so you have to build in profit into your model to figure out what is the profit level we need to make and buy when. For example, what's if I'm investing now $100,000, sort of like Shark Tank, you know, if I give you $100,000, how are you going to turn this into profit and opportunity for the long run? You need to have sit and calculate, what's my ROI? How quickly should I make that investment back? And then begin to make profit going forward and hopefully be able to scale it to do something maybe for the next 10 years and to do it for not just this one client, but to do it for every client that we serve. So those are the those are the types of ideas that you look for, but they have to have that sweet spot intersection, desirability, feasibility, and viability. And chances are, if you can put an idea into the center of all those things, you're going to turn that idea into money. Mm. Well, Elisa's book is divided into three sections. And in the questions that we've delved into thus far, we've covered a lot of section one and, and part of section two. I know our time is short and I've got a couple of questions, Elise, I want to ask you not directly related to the book. So before I do that, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we know? You know, um, I think one of them, Jeff, is that I feel very passionate about culture mm -hmm. and building a compelling culture in a company that you create or in a team that you lead. There's, We often underestimate the power of culture, but in my experience, it became a game changer for us and it became something that really drove our business. For example, we talked earlier about building great teams and attracting people. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. And if you do not have a very compelling culture as a company, you, you're going to churn a lot. You might initially attract somebody, but chances are they're not going to stay around a long time because people these days, particularly, I think they look for so much more in a workplace and cult more than just a paycheck and more than just something to build their career. I think they want to do something meaningful with people that they really like to work with. And they want it to be um, something that changes the world for good. If you could be so bold as to think that, uh, or at least change your community for good. They, they want that opportunity. And you've got to be create a culture that is um, empowers those types of people to dream big dreams and to do really impactful things. And I think that comes from the top. I think that's really driven by the person who's leading the group. And um, I think culture can be the secret weapon that helps you attract and get the very best people. I want to make sure everybody thinks about mm -hmm. that. And there's uh, one such story in the book that Elise uh, shares about a young woman who had a lot of opportunities, a lot of different places mm -hmm. she could go, but she chose your company in large part because of that culture and seeing it lived out among your people from the top on down, right? 
Yeah, she did. She's in our New York office, and she's a she's a rock star. Yeah, and she, <laughs> I remember when we hired her, we wanted her because we knew she was a rock star, and she's still a rock star today, if not even a bigger one. Now she's been <laughs> with us about two years, but we we knew she would be. It would be hard to get her because she was so talented. But when she said that, when she said, "I chose to come here because of your culture. I could go anywhere, and there and all of these companies are great companies to work for. But I wanted to be someplace that I wanted to walk into every day and work with." These type of people and these kind of clients. And I think those, the excellence attracts excellence in my view. You have great clients, you have great people, you're not going to have any trouble attracting um, really smart people to come and join you and other clients because everybody wants to be a part of that mix. I'm a big believer in excellence attracts excellence. That's that's, uh, my motto, I guess you could say. (laughs) Well, it's a good one. (laughs) At least I'd like for you to think about uh, the books that you have enjoyed over the years. You cite a lot uh, in your book that have impacted you. What would you say are, are the two or three titles that immediately come to mind? is having had the biggest impact on you? Mm, well, yeah, that's a great question. There's so many great books out there now, and I, I get a big stack of them to read, and it's hard for me to get through all of them because I'm so eager to get to the next one. But one a book that early on when I was building Mitchell Communications Group had such an impact on me, and I still go back and reread it every couple of years, and, and I recommend it very frequently, is a book called The Trusted Advisor, and it's written by David Meister. And David Meister is sort of a, a consultant's consultant. He's a real guru about consulting and professional service firms particularly. He was at... um, uh, in recent years, he has spoken or been a professor at Harvard, and I think he's retired from that now. But he worked in consulting for many years and wrote several books. And The Trusted Advisor is a powerful book mm. because it really lays out this premise that as a professional and a consultant, particularly somebody that's in a role to be consulting and guiding others, The ultimate goal is for you to become a trusted advisor to your clients. And he explains how you can become that, how you attain that. To me, it was sort of the higher calling, you know, Mm. of of consulting work and how your clients trust you implicitly with virtually everything. And he tells you how hard that is for you to attain that status, but that it is possible to do it. And I, I, I remember reading and thinking, I don't want to just build a company. I want to become a trusted advisor to my clients. I want to help them in a way that is just um, so powerful for them. And you know, that's the whole point. The focus is on the client. It's never on yourself. It's always on how can I help you? And I, I just thought that was um, was just life-changing for me at that time thinking about it. And it became very aspirational. So that book, The Trusted Advisor, excellent book. Um, anything John Maxwell has ever written. I Early in my career, I found his books. He was one of the first authors that really painted a picture for me about what leadership could look like. And again, it was this sort of this pinnacle idea of leading because of your character, you know, people choosing to follow you because of the char- your character, your values, who you are, not because they're forced to. And, you know, the leadership's not defined by title. It was just, it was so much more of what I aspired to be was not anywhere near that, uh, but wanted to become that. So I love anything that Maxwell has written. Um, he's he's done such a beautiful job through the years. You know, an, a recent book that I've read, um, Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, is a, a book that was recommended to me when it first came out. And I thought it was um, really inspirational. You know, his premise is the best leaders, the most successful leaders are those who are givers, 
not takers. Mm. And he really um, encourages you to think about uh, the spirit of reciprocity and leading with a spirit of reciprocity. What can you do for other people? If you always stay focused on others, it will come back to you tenfold. And again, that's something I've always aspired to. I want to be that kind of leader. And I loved that he had a whole book written on that <laughs> and even had studies done, you know, was able to cite research about that. It was very compelling. So I love that book, too. Well, I know the, the the book your first is just out. Uh, any any uh, aspirations of, of a second book uh, down the road? You know, people keep asking me that. I was like, <laughs> this is just coming out, <laughs> so I don't know if anybody's going to buy this one. I will have to see if we sell anything more than to my mom. But right. <laughs> you know, I I am excited about the book. It, it, and I often now I have so many people saying, I've always wanted to write a book. What? Can, how? How would you advise me to go about it? Mm. It is that that you could write a book about writing books, but um, <laughs> it is a very different type of process to go through. But it's filled with blessing because I remember when I first sat down, it's kind of overwhelming to think about writing a whole book. But like anything in life, you break it down into pieces and you take it you know, one chapter at a time. And um, it, it was such a reflective experience to sit and think about you know, the journey that you have been on and the, the, the blessings, the, the uh, challenges, the um, people that you've met, how much I have learned. And I, I remember when I first started thinking about writing the book, people would say, they would hear me speak and they would say, you should write a book. And I'd say, yeah, but I don't think anybody but my mom is going to read it and she won't <laughs> expect to pay for it. So I'm not sure that's a good investment of my time. But what I began to realize was, you know, I would never write a book about what I know because that wouldn't be a very long book. But I could absolutely write a book about what I've learned. And it, that's an important difference. And that's why I wrote this book is I really wanted to write about the challenges I faced and what I learned. Because I thought if I can put all of that together for somebody else to benefit from, you know, they're going to get so much faster to their goals than I did. They'll be so much smarter, quicker than I was. <laughs> Because they'll have the benefit of learning from what I experienced. And so in a way, while it was it was a blessing for me, it was a reflective experience for me, it was also, I felt like um, it was also a mission. You know, it was something I felt very called to do to try to help other people. Yeah, what a great distinction, too. I, I'd never quite heard it put like that. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, Elise, this has been a, a treat. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the book, and I'm so thankful to you in taking the time, especially in light of what I know is a very busy schedule. So we appreciate that very much and, and hope uh, you got something out of it as well along the way. Oh, this was fantastic. It's such an honor for me to be included. J just the whole idea of Read to Lead is so it's very popular now. You've been doing it for quite a while, but it's <laughs> it's so inspirational. And I love that you are able to encourage uh, people to, to dig into some of the, the amazing books that are out there. So thank you for this. This is a great honor for me. I found this book to be filled with a vast amount of experience from someone who has been super successful at what they do, and I highly recommend Elise's book to you. You can connect with her on Twitter, by the way. She's at Elise Mitch. That's E-L-I-S-E, -E, and then the first part of her last name, M-I-T-C-H. That's at Elise Mitch on Twitter. And of course, as always, the links and resources we talked about, including the books that she recommended, can be found at the show notes page created especially for this episode. And you'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 154 for episode 154. 
Don't forget our sponsor, freshbooks.com slash read to lead. There you can take advantage of that 30-day free trial. Special thanks to Doug I Am, who gave us a five-star rating and written review in iTunes. So appreciate that. If you'd like to do the same, whether it's five-star or not, that's okay. We want you to be honest. You can go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes, or you can rate and review us in Stitcher as well. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Oh,